On the one side, we have a large group whom Jesus repeatedly refers to as an evil and adulterous generation. They are the people who do not respond rightly to Jesus. But on the other side are those who hear Jesus, who listen to his word, who respond appropriately. The makeup of that particular group, it might hold some surprises for us. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, and Jonathan, as we begin this message today, you've made the distinction between these two groups. What is surprising about that one group who does listen to the words of Jesus? I think the surprising thing, and this runs really throughout the Gospels, throughout Jesus' interactions with people, those who respond joyfully and willingly and readily to Jesus, who receive his message, who open up their hearts and their lives to him, they're not always the people we might expect. They're not always the upright in society, you know, the respectable people. They're not always the religious insiders by any means. They're, they're often people who might be regarded as outsiders by the religious establishment. And that's an interesting thing to observe. Actually, it's a very, very striking thing. And one of the things it tells us is that there's no typical responder to Jesus. Sometimes it is the least likely people who open their hearts to him. And and I, I would say, if you're someone listening and you think, I am, I am the most unlikely person that Jesus Christ would take any interest in, well, you might find you are precisely the kind of person that Jesus takes an interest in. And I would think that the other thing that could give us hope today as we think about that, if we have friends, if we have family members, if we have people who seem like they might never come to Jesus, well, this truth means that they are not outside of God's reach, that he still may draw them to himself. Absolutely. He he does that in wonderful ways. The Lord, I think, delights in surprising us sometimes with joyful surprises of that kind. And certainly in the Gospels, we see Jesus reaching people who seem unreachable again and again. Well, let's go to the Gospels. We're in the book of Matthew, chapter 12 today, as we begin An Evil Generation and the Family of God. Here is Jonathan. I don't know if you've ever stood at a a chasm, perhaps the Ausable Chasm in New York State or another famous chasm and seen where great forces have separated the earth over time and created a dramatic gap between two sides. Depending on the place, scientists will offer different explanations, different theories for how it emerged, erosion above, or movement of the earth below. But I suppose most chasms become more defined over time. Normally, the gap only increases and becomes more dramatic. Perhaps a given chasm began only with a sort of hairline crack in the surface many, many years ago. We don't know. But now no one could cross it. So dramatic is the opening. There's no question that Jesus inspires and elicits a mixed response from those whom he encounters. As he continues to make himself known, to work his miracles, to declare his kingdom, the distinction between those who will respond positively to Jesus, who will receive his teaching, who will choose to follow him, between such people and then those who will respond with skepticism, with cynicism, with unbelief, well, it is growing. The gap is growing. It's becoming more defined, clearer. It is a widening gap all the time. 
And here in our passage today in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus distinguishes very clearly between the two sides. But the dividing line, the distinguishing line, what will become a chasm, it's not necessarily located exactly where we might have assumed or where his hearers might have assumed. On the one side, we we have a, a group, a large group, quite clearly the majority of the hearers, whom Jesus repeatedly refers to as this generation in our passage, or this wicked generation, or an evil and adulterous generation, they are the people who do not respond rightly to Jesus, who refuse to listen, who refuse to trust Him, who refuse to repent and to believe. Members of this group, they include plenty of the religious leaders. That becomes clear, the religious elite of the day. But on the other side now are those who hear Jesus, who listen to His Word, who trust Him, who turn from sin, who respond appropriately. And again, the makeup of that particular group, it might hold some surprises for us. Now, as we follow this dividing line, this sort of chasm in formation, as it winds its way through our rather interesting passage today, as we follow the line, we're going to see a distinction emerge between the two sides on a number of different levels. We're going to see that they are distinct, first of all, in terms of their judicial standing, that is, their standing in judgment. I think as we read verse 38, we're meant to see how arrogant and how preposterous is the approach of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, the experts in the law who challenge Jesus. Remember, Jesus had demonstrated His power and His authority as both a worker of miracles and as an interpreter of the Old Testament law, as an instructor in divine truth. It's become increasingly clear as we've watched Jesus and as we've listened to Jesus, it's become increasingly clear that He is no ordinary traveling religious teacher. No, He is the promised servant of the Lord, even the Messiah of Israel. Now, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're not simply skeptical about Jesus at this point. We, we understand from this very chapter that they truly hate Him. The Pharisees, verse 14, are already plotting His murder. So, verse 38, it, it is dripping now with insincerity as we read it. Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered Him, saying, Teacher, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. They come to him with this respectful term of address, teacher, they say, but that is precisely where the respect ends. Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We've heard your words, we've listened to your claims, but we are unconvinced, profoundly unconvinced by your credentials. Prove to us, please, that you really are a teacher worth our attention. It's like, I don't know, walking into a university lecture on your first day as an undergraduate student. The world-famous professor is at the lectern, sort of ready to begin the address, and you, the 19-year-old undergraduate, come up to her and say, you know, Professor so-and-so, before I sit and give my time to listen to your lecture, would you mind just giving me a rundown of the list of your publications could, could, could you walk me to your office and show me the certificates, please, on your wall? I, I wouldn't mind seeing some references from former students. Would you have those available for me? I would like some kind of confirmation that you are 
qualified. I'd like some proof, really, before I buy in and invest my time. Is that okay by you? No disrespect intended, of course, Professor. I just don't really trust you. <laughs> we need to see that what is going on here really is a power contest. Who is really in charge? And who, in particular, is the judge within this situation? That's the real issue. Who will pass judgment on whom? The theme of judgment was introduced in the previous verses. You may remember that Jesus gave this warning to the people to be careful about how they speak to him and how they speak about him. Their careless words of response, they will come under scrutiny at the final judgment. Notice verse 36 again, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned. Words of response to Jesus, words about Jesus, every one of them will be weighed, every one of them matters. But the scribes and the Pharisees, they've ignored that warning, and they have come to Jesus in boldness and in arrogance as judges over him. Show us a sign. Justify yourself as a teacher. Teacher, we will judge you. We will evaluate you. That's the attitude. That's the approach. And of course, it's the approach of so many actually in our world today. It may be the approach of some here and some listening. I don't know. You might not say it quite like this, but your approach is really this. You know, I'm, I'm listening with some interest. I'm, I'm intrigued, but I will be the judge and I will reserve judgment for the time being. If I happen to like what Jesus says, if he puts on a good show, you know, with some miraculous works, that could be very interesting. I might be convinced. I might be impressed, but I will be the judge and I am reserving judgment. And Jesus says this, verse 39, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus insists, perhaps to our shock and amazement, that there is something evil and spiritually adulterous about demanding a sign from him, demanding proof that he is who he says he is. For these religious leaders to come and do that, to come and make that demand, it is a sign that they stand on the wrong side of this line, that they stand on the opposite side of the growing chasm, that they are spiritually unfaithful to the Lord himself. And Jesus says, in effect, you know, I'm not a circus animal that will just jump when you snap your fingers. I'm simply not doing that. There will be no sign for this generation delivered up on demand. The only sign that will come is the same sign that came to verify and confirm the authenticity of the ministry of the prophet Jonah of old. Just as he was swallowed up by that whale, taken down, as it were, to the grave three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be swallowed by the grave and rise again on the third day. That'll be your sign. That'll be your proof. And of course, if we want to get into a discussion concerning proof of Jesus' word, proof of the gospel message, the resurrection is the great sign and the great miracle to consider. It is the miracle of all miracles. The whole of the gospel message does stand or fall on the strength of the resurrection. But you know, the point here is not that Jesus wants the people to be convinced by the miracle. I don't think that's what he's saying. No, he's saying something else. Notice the flow of logic, verse 41. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh was known as an evil city, and Jonah, he didn't want to go there. He didn't want to bring the message of the grace of God to an unworthy people. But when they ultimately do hear the Lord's prophet proclaim the Lord's word, what did they do? They repented. They turned from sin. That was the response to Jonah. And now a greater prophet is here, a greater messenger of God, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And what will the people do with him? Or to take another example, verse 44, the queen of the south, that is the queen of Sheba, who came to hear King Solomon's wisdom in 1 Kings chapter 10. The queen of the south will rise up, says Jesus, at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. This was a Gentile queen, not an Israelite, but she came from afar, from the ends of the known earth, to hear the Lord's wisdom spoken by the Lord's king, and now a greater king, and a greater wise man is here, a greater than Solomon is here, and what will the people do with him? The Gentiles of the wicked city, the queen of the foreign nation, they came to hear, and they were ready to respond. And notice what Jesus says will happen. The Ninevites, the queen of Sheba, they will rise up on the day of judgment and condemn this generation, for they responded to a word from a lesser agent, Jonah, Solomon. They listened, they heard, they repented, and this generation that has encountered the word of Jesus directly, this generation absolutely refused to hear. They've set themselves up as little judges, and so, says Jesus, they will be judged. Religious leaders within Israel will be judged by Gentiles who would hear the Word of God. And so the dividing line, the growing chasm, it cuts in an unexpected place. It doesn't cut between the sort of outwardly religious and the irreligious, or between the Israelite and the non-Israelite. No, it runs between those who will hear and those who will respond and those who will not do so. It divides those who will repent and those who will not repent, those who will believe and those who refuse to believe. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Our message is called An Evil Generation and the Family of God. Now, it's part of a larger series called Living as Kingdom People. And if you ever miss a broadcast in the series, you can always come to our website. You can listen online. Just stop by EncounterTheTruth.org. You can stream the program or download an MP3 for free. You can also listen on the go if you have the Encounter the Truth app. It makes it convenient to listen whenever it fits your schedule. Now, you can find the app by going to your favorite app store and simply searching for Encounter the Truth. Well, let's get back to the message. If you joined us late, we're in Matthew chapter 12. Once again, here is Jonathan. The leaders who smugly approached Jesus like this, I have no doubt that they were 100% certain in their own minds that they were in a good place before God. They were secure. They had religious knowledge. They were respected within the community. People listened to them. They were leaders in worship. 
in teaching the Scriptures. They were insiders and not outsiders. At least that's how they saw themselves. No doubt in their minds, I'm sure of it. But Jesus now declares that they are actually on the wrong side of the line. And when the judgment comes, they will not stand. They cannot stand. Those who would judge will, in fact, be judged. Friends, this is such a warning, such a warning to those who would come to Jesus as judge over him, who would come as skeptic and demand that Jesus Christ prove himself and justify himself. It's common enough to do that. I have enough conversations with individuals who are doing that very thing, and it's a fearful thing for me to be in that conversation. Conversations with people who feel they're very secure in their judgment of Jesus and who feel that they are in the driver's seat. What a delusion. And if that's you, if that's where you are today, may I urge you, please be careful. Jesus, he, he doesn't have to prove himself to you, but you will have to stand before him at the final day. That's the ultimate reality. And the all-important thing will be this at the judgment. Did you listen to his words? Did you respond in repentance? Did you hear with faith? These religious leaders wanted an impressive sign, but Jesus drove them back to the central issue. Have you listened to my words? The Ninevites, they listened and they repented. The queen of Sheba came from the ends of the earth to hear, and they model for us a listening. When it comes to the judgment, those who hear Jesus in faith will enjoy security. There is this clear distinction between those who heed Jesus' word and those who will not, first, when it comes to their judicial standing, when it comes to the judgment. Second, there is a clear and deepening chasm between the two groups when it comes to their spiritual vulnerability. Verse 43, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through the waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the state of that person is worse than at the first, so it will be with this generation. I don't know if you've ever been in the situation of being a landlord who has to manage tenants, and in particular, bad tenants. I'm sure some listening have been in that very place before. I saw on a news feed the other day a piece about a landlord who was selling a house that had been tenanted. It looked like a very nice suburban home from the outside, quite large, well-situated, but on the inside, as the pictures were shown, it was an unbelievable disaster, an unmitigated disaster, filthy, every surface and finished, scratched, damaged, graffitied. The house was actually destroyed. It was basically a teardown. And the owner had simply given up and was selling in despair. Now, Jesus here, he is speaking about the worst tenants you could possibly imagine. Tenants not of homes, of real estate, but of hearts. Jesus has been moving through territory where evil spirits have been occupying human hearts and have had influence in the community, and he has gone through preaching the word and casting out demons, and as he has done so, these evil spirits have been driven out and driven back, 
But just because Jesus has driven out demons and just because they have fled from before him, it doesn't mean that the people who have been liberated have come to saving faith, have actually received him. And so here is a danger that he wants the people to see and understand. If you leave a spiritual vacuum when the presence of evil departs from before Jesus, if Jesus drives back the evil, but then the people do not receive him, there is now a vacuum, and that's a very dangerous thing. You see that house I mentioned, some unsuspecting buyer could, could snap it up, perhaps as a good investment opportunity, no doubt at a good price. Paint it. Fix it up, put in new floors and bathrooms, a new kitchen, get the landscaping in order, and then put it back on the rental market. The old tenant could see the ad and see how nice the house looks and get a little homesick and say to his friends, hey, you know, my, my old place there, it's up for rent again. Want to go in together on the rent? <laughs> Be a real party, wouldn't it, if we moved in all together? And so they show up with their clutter and their mess and their bad habits and soon the house is even more filthy and more destroyed than it was before. Jesus here, he is warning of the danger of exposure to him and to his word without a believing response. You see, the presence of Jesus and the word of Jesus, the work of Jesus, it pushes back the forces of darkness. There's no question about that. When Jesus comes to a place, the evil spirits, they know that they are no match for him. And in those instances where a spirit has oppressed an individual and Jesus sets them free, the evil spirit flees. He did that earlier in the same chapter. But if the exposure to Jesus is just temporary, if the people who experience his presence in some way do not heed his word and turn from sin and respond in faith, if there's not that kind of response, what is left is a spiritual vacuum, a spiritual vulnerability. And notice here, I think this is quite significant. Jesus is not just speaking of the individual who has been released from demon oppression. He is addressing here the whole generation who have been exposed to his word and to his work. End of verse 45. The last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. Much more wide implication, a much wider implication. The generation, the crowd, had heard the word of Jesus, had encountered Jesus in some way, had benefited, it seems, from the spiritual impact of his presence in their community, but now they were all vulnerable. As we zoom out from this incident and consider the principle in light of our wider understanding of, of the Scriptures in light of the gift of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, I think the point here comes into a bit of a sharper focus for us here today. We understand in light of the rest of the New Testament that when a person turns from sin and trusts in Christ, he, he gives his Holy Spirit to live within us. Jesus comes to indwell his people by his spirit. And so the, the spiritual vacuum in the age of the spirit, in the age of the church, it is filled and the house is occupied by a new tenant. And this tenant will not be displaced by spiritual squatters. But the warning here for listeners today is significant. If you've heard the word of Jesus 
If you have perhaps been around the church long enough to have seen something and experienced something of the power of Jesus among his people, if you've had contact and exposure to Jesus Christ, perhaps growing up in a Christian home, I think that's a key example. Perhaps being among friends who are believers for some time, If that's you, you've heard the word of Jesus, you've seen something of the work of Jesus, but you've not made your own response to Jesus, a response of repentance and faith, I think these words are words of warning. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Our message today, An Evil Generation in the Family of God, part of a larger series, Living as Kingdom People. Well, we are going to pause right here. We're going to continue this message next time, so I hope you'll make it a point to tune in. If you've missed any broadcast in the series so far, you can always come to our website and you can listen online at EncounterTheTruth.org. And while you're there, I want to ask you to consider giving a gift because we do depend on your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. As you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you three little books written by Tim Keller on birth, marriage, and death. It's just our way of saying thanks. You can find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884 or EncounterTheTruth.org. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time.